Welcome to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns. Real people, real voices, real lives. Discussing mental health, addiction and disability in the community. Your weekly window to the real world. Welcome to Take It From Us. Take it from us for another week. Hope you've been looking after yourselves as best you can and each other, of course. Please leave us uh, messages on the Facebook page. We love those notes that you leave us. Facebook.com. Take it from us. Always really appreciate uh, your feedback, of course. Plus, feel free to throw our name forward for our Sheldon shout-out that we do each week. Karen will be along uh, with another one uh, just before we finish up today. I saw Sir John Kerwin being interviewed recently. And he spoke about the need for a mental health plan. He has one. Doing the things every day that will benefit mood. It's a great idea if we all had one. And I thought about myself and I thought, well, actually, I've not, I've not sat down and written one out, but I do have anchor behaviours that I lean on heavily that I've come to truly appreciate. And then if I don't have those anchor behaviours in my life regularly, I do find that I start to go backwards mentally and emotionally. And so for me, I need to be walking for probably an hour, maybe four or five times every week. doesn't have to be every day, but if I go sort of three days without a good long walk, where I think about my life and, and my day and how everything's going for me, I find that I start to tense up a little bit, find myself getting irritable, and I think, oh, of course, you know, come on, man, you know better than this now. You need to be walking. So I need to do four to five of those each week. I also need to be reading books at night. I find I'm a lot more relaxed when I go to sleep. I, I find it much easier to go to sleep. I find that I wake up better, more relaxed, and, and maybe more optimistic if I if I have a good book. It has to be a good book. So I've spoken to my lovely partner about this, and I said, look, just remind me, if you notice that I'm coming to bed without reading, tell me about it because I won't be able to sustain that for very long. I, I need to be reading a really good book in bed each night. I try to meditate where I can, I put some time aside for mindfulness and and the other one that I really have to be very wary of uh, for me personally is the amount of alcohol that I drink each week I, I like to have a beer, uh, particularly craft beer but I also know that I have too many can be a little bit scratchy the next day. So those are the kind of anchor behaviours for me that would form, I guess if I think about it, kind of like an informal mental health plan you know, I need to be doing those things well, and I need to be minimising the risk of of alcohol. So those are the things that are kind of front and centre for me today. Just when I think about it, and I thought there was a really great message that John Kerwin, he, he has been putting this out there, but specifically in the, in the interview that I saw recently, talking about that mental health plan and that it's great for all of us to have one. Probably doesn't mean that you have to sit down and write it all out, but if you've got a fair idea uh, that you've got these things in your life that you enjoy and that you know will benefit you. Uh, just really, really important. Uh, speaking of JK, he has a New Zealand registered charitable trust called Mighty, and they go out into schools and talk to young kids about the importance of maybe a mental health plan 
about talking openly about feelings and emotions and the importance of looking after our brains and our minds not just in that physical sense but in that mental and emotional sense we need to be looking after ourselves a lot better than we have been and so there's an education uh, to be had for all of these young kids and so Tim will be along really looking forward to hearing from him Tim Corbett is the Chief Executive of Mighty we'll hear from him very shortly about that program and about the benefits that they are seeing uh, we had the budget of course released last week by Grant Robertson from the New Zealand Labour Party billions and billions of dollars to go to health over the next four years, specifically $100 million across four years for mental health services. Sounds like a lot, nice round number, but what will it actually mean? You know, and will Daryl take an optimistic view or a pragmatic view around how that money may be used and whether it's going to be from him as well today? Uh, but first up is Auckland councillor and mayoral candidate Fessel Collins. He is going to join us to talk about how he wants to further help his people, but also to give a sense of what he believes are the challenges facing our people in New Zealand's biggest city right here in Auckland. Fessel, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for joining us on Take It From Us. How are you doing? Oh, it's hard for love and you're doing really well. Thanks. Really honoured to be on your show. So great to, to chat with you and looking forward to a bit of a yarn. Yeah, well, we've got plenty that we can cover off in the next little while. But what's been front of mind for you in, say, the last few weeks? Yeah, well, uh, people might know that I'm in the middle of a mayoral campaign at the moment for Auckland, so that's kept us really busy, and uh, it was not, it's been really great to get around the city, meet lots of different people. We're a big city, 1.7 million people, but just good to engage with people, and now that we're allowed to meet and, and get out and about, it's been great to sit down, have coffee, and you get the odd hug as well. So I've really enjoyed getting out, talking to people. And I think that interaction is really important because I think so so many people have been wanting to interact to kind of get out socially connect again i think it's been a it's been a lovely time for everybody is there a particular theme that you can pick up on from what people have been telling you yeah, in, in relation to being out and about, I think it's just people wanting to reconnect again and you know, lots of people with different ideas about the, how the city will be run. But I think for a lot of students in particular, they're, they're enjoying the chance to meet up with their friends and hang out. My daughter is nine years old. She couldn't wait to get back to school and she's loving it at the moment. It's really settled her as well. I, I think the first time when we went into lockdown, she was enjoying being online and all the FaceTime, but the second lockdown was a bit tough for my girl and so and she's really sociable as well and she just loves people interaction so she's having a great time at school not sure that she's doing a lot of learning Kent but I think she's loving being with people again I, I'm really happy for her yeah, my daughter's back at school too. Um, she, she's been back now for a few weeks and she's a little younger than yours. But I, I think that's a, such a nice point that you raise that we think that and being engaged on Zoom meetings and, and using technologies is so powerful. But actually it's being with people, being in each other's company, isn't it? Yeah, and, and just sharing a coffee and just kind of catching up. It's so different when you're near people. And I've enjoyed Zoom because, yeah, Zoom has been good just to be able to get to lots of things. But it doesn't mm. – it, it's not quite as personal. And I, I've i enjoyed meeting with people. And, yeah, I was just saying to you earlier, even being at church, people are hugging like crazy and really enjoying one another's company. So I think it's been really positive, and I'm glad that yeah, our kids in particular – you know, I, I thought my girl was – 
just going to be cool because she was hanging out with her parents. And then I realised mm. that I'm not as cool as a nine-year-old kind of expects. So I've been a yeah. bit disappointed that I'm not cool anymore mm. to her. Yeah. <laughs> well, would she think you're cool if you could say, hey, look, darling, I'm the mayor of Auckland? <laughs> would that be cool? I, I, I think it'll be cool. She's still coming to terms with what that means. And when we're on the campaign trail, she's out there, she's wearing my T-shirt. But she's she too, because she's quite a, you know, she loves the social interaction, she's enjoying the campaign because she gets to meet other children. And she's been saying to me, Dad, it's so nice to hear people talking about children because mm. it means that they're thinking about us. You know, her particular interests are around playgrounds and that kind of thing. So I, I've, I've enjoyed it for that mm. and seeing her enjoy it too. We live in the world's largest Pacific Island city, largest Polynesian city. You would be Auckland's first ever Polynesian mayor. What would that mean to you? Yeah, I think it'll be really special, special for our family, special for my parents in particular and the many, the thousands of Pacific people who came over in the 1960s to seek the the milk and honey that we were often told it would be. So really special, but special for Auckland too, because I'm really keen to be the kind of leader that embraces people, that reconnects us given the challenges we've had over the last couple of years in particular, but sets a vision. And I want people to know that we're visionary, that we've got big ideas for Auckland. We've got some big challenges ahead as well, but when we're addressing climate change, when we're talking to people about how we need to adjust some of our behaviours, it's going to make people want to be part of this great city. So, yeah, it'll be be a really special time. There's a whole lot of work in front of us as well. What would be, you know, one change that you'd love to make overnight, if you could? That's a good question. I think the the one thing is is probably our public transport system and making sure that more people are getting out of their cars, hopping on the bus or the train, making sure that we've got enough cycling and pedestrian infrastructure so that people can actually actively get to work. And when more people are walking, more people are cycling, it's it's got really good health benefits for us, but it addresses some of our carbon emissions too and that we'll be out of the car, we'll be filling up buses and trains and we'll be doing good things things for our health by travelling to work by foot or by, by mm. bicycle. So I think that's the key thing because th- we've got to address some of our serious climate change challenges and I, I want Auckland to feel like we're playing our part because we're part of a huge world and we know that as a diverse city everyone wants to play their part so that we can lower carbon emissions. So that would be the one thing I'd want to change overnight. Mm. You live in Otahahu, of course, in, in South Auckland. Tell us about your community where you live and your family. So we live in an apartment complex in Otahu. We've been living here for, in this complex for the last four years and loving it. Eh? The, the people here are so generous and kind. We're about a two-minute walk from the main street where people will know uh, you can come and do your shopping. We live next door uh, to the recreation centre, the library, the swimming pool. So we love it here because there's so many people around. There's a real uh, kind of a hive of activity. People treat it like a hub. And so it's nice to meet such diverse people, it's cool to connect with people who are out doing their shopping or just catching up with friends at the library and as I was saying, my daughter loves going next door to the swimming pools and the gym. We've been taking her along to the gym as well, and she's been encouraging me to stay on the treadmill. So uh, she's a whole lot fitter than I am, and so I've been saying, yep, I'm going to do this for you. I'm not quite the 20-year-old who played rugby back in the day. It's uh, the, the beef's kind of come on a little bit, so she's helping me to try and stay healthy and fit. What else do you do to look after yourself? 
Yeah, so the gym is probably one key thing, and I, um, I I like to go to the gym, and it's a good chance to kind of block out the world. I put on my big headset, uh, and I just have my music blasting, or I have a podcast blasting while I, um, you know, hit the treadmill or the rowing machine. But other things I do to to help, kind of some often to de-stress or just to help me kind of face the day and know that I'm, I'm doing all right as I'll, I'll spend a lot of time with my wife just chilling we talk a lot uh, I, I love being with my girls and you're just going to the playground with my girls is I find it really fulfilling it's almost therapeutic for me because it's just time hanging out with them and they're my focus there's nothing else in front of me I can just focus on the girls and then watching them jump up and down on the trampoline so that, that's something I do I really enjoy and hanging out with some of my boys I, I really enjoy being with the boys and it doesn't matter what we're doing whether we're mocking each other at the driving range having coffee or at the gym last night I went with a couple of the boys it's just the opportunity to connect and we get into really cool conversations you know when you're puffed out and you're trying to talk while you're on the treadmill you really do prioritize what's important because you've got you're out of breath to talk about much else and often we're talking about our families our marriages how things are going at work and even some of the stresses that we're facing that we need to kind of just you know it's good to have mates that you can talk to about those things absolutely and there are a lot of stresses at the moment for people a lot of pressure what do you think is foremost present for people that you talk to that they are worried about and concerned about and having to deal with on a daily basis yeah, I, I think that the cost of living uh, crisis has, is really top of mind for people. When you've got petrol prices that are now well over $3 a litre, you've got uh, food that's really expensive, and you're trying to make every stretch every dollar so that you can pay for food, you can get the kids decent meals, you can meet the bills, whether it's rent or your mortgage, and making sure that the kids can go on trips. I've been talking to a number of parents who've been saying, gosh, it's just so stressful because we're just struggling to get by. And then when the school has a trip on, you don't want your child to miss out. And that creates a lot of anxiety for many of our parents. And often we don't have the the ability to talk through those things or, or a vent or, or an outlet. And so just being out in the community talking to people is one way for people just to talk to someone and I've been really honoured that people have been so open and honest with me and the conversations they've had. And so I think the cost of living crisis in particular is on people's mind, but even housing and, uh, you know, just a lot of our people are always wondering, oh, I'm not sure when the, the, the landlord might say we're going to sell the house. And so they live with this worry. So they, they'll be at home, but in the back of their mind, they've got this ongoing worry that if they're the landlord decides they're going to sell the house, they're going to be out of a house. So people have this, these kind of ongoing pressures that they're dealing with all the time. And I think it's it's challenging on adults. I know it's, it's hard on kids too, but I'm really aware of people in our generation who are, you know, young parents and they're trying their best to make ends meet, but there's high anxieties for them. Mm. And also socioeconomically, the divide between people who are doing well financially and those who are not has probably never been bigger. And I, I wonder whether a lot of people who have never struggled financially truly can understand and empathise with the plight of those where it is a daily, constant, fatiguing worry and concern. But you can empathise, so you can speak to that, can't you? 
Yeah, we we growing up. Yeah, I'm still here in South Auckland. I still live here. We grew up in Otara, and a lot of the issues that I faced as a young person, even some of the pressures that I observed of my parents, I I remember that a lot of the tensions uh, growing up and and some of the arguments at home were often about money. Were often about can we, you know, is it this bill this week instead of some some other bill? I remember back in the days where most people had landlines. You know, our landline used to get cut because we couldn't afford to pay it and all the toll calls that were coming in from overseas. So I really get the pressures and we, we count ourselves really blessed now. Both my wife and I work and we've got two kids and we're, we're able to really support them. But I still go into schools, do a lot of work with young people and you know, things like the, the gratitude I see in, when I'm in schools of, of when I go in and I visit a breakfast club or schools that have lunch programs, the kids are just so grateful. And I've met parents at the gate and, you know, they're a bit embarrassed sometimes when I'm there and then we're chatting. And they've been saying to me, if you saw the only reason we drop the kids off first thing in the morning early to school is because that way I know as they're their mum or their dad, that they're going to have breakfast and that this school's also going to have lunch. And so my concern is making sure they've got dinner at home, but it just alleviates that pressure for me because I know my child is being fed. And those are real issues. And often we talk now about the working poor, that as more people have been challenged, lots of people lost their jobs over the COVID period. More and more people are now dependent on schools for breakfast and lunch, the Salvation Army, Vinnies, who are doing great things to make sure that people have got food packages in the house and really support them. So these are genuine challenges that people face. And I I hope that people know that we can stand with them, but also that we can help ensure that they know where to go for the assistance that's required. But yeah, you're right, Ken, it's Mm. tough out there at the Mm. moment. Professor Collins is with us on Take It From Us. He is an Auckland councillor and Auckland mayoral candidate. Uh, Professor, you've also been on the record recently in a magazine article and talking about the, the financial hardship you and your family found yourselves in a number of years ago and how stressful that was for you. H- how did you come through that? How did you find a way to cope with those pressures at the time? I think the way I used to approach things was I would internalise everything and so I wouldn't talk to anyone. I just know that there's big pressure on and you just, I'm the youngest in my family and so for me it was just you do it, you just handle it and you get hard and you move on. And what I found over that period, Kent, was that just you get to a point where the balloon can't expand anymore and I just felt so under pressure. I I started to see undervalued myself, I was losing confidence and in a way it was all just a bit of a, um, a performance you know, I've, I've been in roles in my life where I'm constantly in the community where I'm connecting with young people and I found like I had a life at work and I had a person that would turn up to work and a different person who was at home really struggling and so a lot of the things that uh, are now really, they're real pillars in my life were the things that I found then was talking to people, knowing who I could trust, having really solid Solid friends around me who, and who who would listen to me. But it was finding the confidence to believe that I was worth listening to because I always felt like, oh, I don't want to put pressure on somebody else. They've got enough pressures of their own. Not realizing that the boys that I was hanging out with, and my she was my girlfriend at the time, now my wife. She was more than happy to listen to me, but it took a, such a big step for me to even believe that my story was valuable enough for someone else to listen to. So having good friends around me, and I didn't need 
need many. You know, I just had two or three of the boys, but they they stood with me. And then the gym stuff, I made sure that I started going to the gym. And I found that the exercise really helped. And uh, at that stage, I didn't understand the science of how it actually makes you happy when you're exercising. It always made me unhappy because I used to think, oh my gosh, this is tough going, you know, sweating Mm -hmm. like crazy at the gym. But I didn't realize it was actually doing something to lift my spirit. And so all of those things I found that I was enjoying. The other thing I enjoyed too is I quite enjoy walking on my own and having my headset on and playing music and as I realized that those things were feeding my soul those were the things I was turning to that I knew that were going to help me get through these really tough times do you think enough people particularly men know how to reach out for help in New Zealand no, not not from my experience. And I think what even what I've explained of my situation, I think there'll be lots of men tuning in thinking, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I think the other challenge that we face too is at my stage of life, you become a dad or you're, you know, you're a parent or you're a husband or partner and you want to try and be strong for everyone. And I think we often feel like we've got the big shoulders, we've got to carry it for everyone, not realizing that sometimes we need a break too. And so I want to encourage men to speak out. But I also want to encourage men to reach out as well, because as I was saying, it was really hard for me to say to someone, I'm going through stuff, because I felt like I was weak. I felt like I wasn't important. And so one of the things that I do is I text the boys when I'm heading off to the gym at weird hours in the night. And I just say to them, bro, I'm going to the gym. If you're around, just pop down. And last night, a couple of the boys did come down, you know, and, and there we were cracking up, you know, half the night at the gym wasn't hardly anyone in the the gym we were having a good time listening to music completely puffed out on the treadmill but it was a chance to connect and then the long conversations begin when we get outside and that's when we can really start talking about what our challenges are and those are the things I think are really important so yeah it's it's me taking a step to talk to someone but it's also making sure that I'm looking out for my friends looking out for people and just saying hey how's things going and if you you get a sense that things aren't the best and invite them to the gym get them along to coffee force them to the driving range because that might be the one chance they have to come out and just have a sharing time with you it might be that they needed you to ask them how they're doing because they weren't prepared to volunteer that information it's amazing isn't it the power of that one question because people want they want to be able to find a way to let this out but often they don't know how yeah. So, so do you think it's incumbent on us as friends and family and whanau to actually take more of an active interest and ask and don't wait to be told information? Yeah, absolutely. And it's imp- hey, we just flick out a text to say, how are you doing? But I've taken the next step, and I'm, maybe I'm a bit of a bully on this one, but I'm forcing people. I'm just saying, bro, right. I'm heading over. Hey, I'm heading over. I'm going to the gym. Because they might text me and say, yeah, yeah, I'm just at home chilling out, doing nothing. And I think, oh, cool. If there's a game on, I'll say to them, oh, come, let's go watch the Blues game or the Chiefs game together. Uh, We'll watch it on my iPad. And I'm kind of forcing people. But what it means is, it's probably because I have very few friends, but I'm forcing them just to connect. And it's amazing. You sit down, you're watching a game or you're at the gym and slowly conversations build. But these are people I trust. They're people that I know that I care about as well. And I'm, I'm a bit of a pain in the bum for them, but I think it's really important that they know. I just turn up and I just knock on their door and say, yeah, yeah, let's go, Dad. I'm going to take your husband or your dad away for a couple of hours. And I think that's part of it is when 
people you're right people there's almost this um there's this really cool feeling about feeling like someone's that interested in your life and i have a lot of my boys do that to me they just turn up and they say festival we're off to the gym i had one of the boys turn up out of nowhere last week he was holding a couple of donuts and he said come let's go have a coffee i've, I've got these leftover donuts and let's go talk and Little things like that make me feel like someone really is interested in me, and it's a beautiful feeling, and I want that for those around me as well. Well, look, we really appreciate your time. We know how busy you are. You've got a heck of a lot going on. Um, Hopefully we'll keep in touch, and we wish you all the very best for the mural campaign. Go well, and thanks for sharing your story and also for sharing your interest and being a, a listener for the people in our community who desperately need it, the festival. Thank you. Thanks heaps for having me. This is Take It From Us. Real stories, real life, as told by you.
That's right, yeah. I mean, he's got so much mana and respect for, you know, 20 years' worth of, of work in the sector that it just opens doors mm. and, and people just trust him and respect him and, and believe him. Mm. So, uh, and also he just has those networks into areas that most people don't have. Mm. But at the same, you know, I saw him in action last week. He, he, gives, he always gives 110% attention to whoever he's in front of. So I saw him uh, working with six to nine-year-olds last week in, in Takalini School, and those kids just left him up, and he just, you know, he, he gave them as much attention as he then gave the principal, as he then gave, you yeah. know, he would then be on, on the weekend probably on Sky TV or something. So, no, he's, he's, a, he's a, a good man. And what was he talking to them about? Oh, this was a, uh, Takalini School was one of our mighty schools, and uh, they've been involved for about uh, close to two years now. So this was uh, filming some uh, some promo material for Mighty and, uh, and a partnership we've got coming up in July uh, for a national uh, roadshow. So you're the chief executive of Mighty, which is about helping young children in New Zealand to talk about and learn about mental health, mental well-being, and what they can do later in life. How did the program come about? Yeah, sure. It's uh, JK's way of sort of describing it is that it ran about, uh, I think, about four years ago. He opened up the paper, and there were two key things in there. One was that uh, mental health and stress was going into the Health and Safety Act, and that spawned his work that's now called uh, Groove. That's a commercial business that puts in place a digital suite of mental health tools for uh, businesses to, put, to look after their staff. On the other side, he also saw that our youth suicide stats were still the worst in the OECD. I think we're still the worst. We, we have under 10-year-olds committing suicide in New Zealand. It's, it's just horrendous. Um, so under, under 15, we do, but there are like kids with single digits on their age committing suicide. And it, you know, it just shouldn't happen in this really what is a land of milk and honey. Um, so he saw that in there and said to himself, you know, everything I've been doing has been great, but I really haven't made the impact that I, I wanted to. So that then he got together. The, the obvious place is to sort of go to high schools because that's sort of where it manifests. But when he first started talking to principals there, they said it's too late. You need to get to kids when they're 5 to 12 at primary school. And it's that, that classic thing of, you know, show me the child at seven and I'll show you the, the adult uh, as later on. So then it was just a year of design. So, again, didn't sort of um, 
dive in as a sort of a passion project, but actually got people together who don't normally get together in the same room, marketers, web people, design people, uh, educators, health people, Māori health people, and out of that spawned uh, Mighty, which is a, a curriculum-based approach that wraps around the whole school. So a child goes from 5 to 12 years old at a, at a Mighty school learning how to look after their own mental health and those around them as well. Mm. So how is the program delivered to the kids? Sure. It's, it's a three-year system. Um, we, we have uh, senior experienced teachers who have come out of school who are senior teachers or sort of at AP, DP level. So they've got that mana to go into a school and they, they can speak principal as well as speak six-year-old, which is mm. really critical. So they're, they're trusted and, um, and, and respected by the schools when they come in. They spend 70 hours in the school in the first year. Um, and that will be a mix of train the trainer, so, t- so training the teachers how to teach mental health education. The whole goal in the end is to have mental health education just another subject in the school, maths, English, literacy, mental health, so just normalise it. But at the same time, to make it sustainable, they also work with the principals, the senior syndicate teams and the boards of trustees to embed uh, the policies that turn the school into a mental health education zone. So there's... Four, four different drivers, staff well-being, teaching and learning, policy and community engagement. And that means it's not just a program that sort of goes in for six weeks and then we have to go back again the following year to redo the kits. Is that, now, that school now becomes a uh, health-promoting zone. So now every child going through there for the future is also getting mental health education. So it lays, it lays an infrastructure. And I guess too, you'll also be creating that expectation from for young children that when they go to school, they will learn about the stuff as would be the case with say physical education, oh, yeah, which exactly. which none of none of us would ever think would be unimportant. Yet for for so long, this was not part of the school curriculum. No. Yet it makes makes you wonder as to why not. Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's, there's always been that big stigma around mental health and that sort of thing. So, and, that, and again, it's a big thing that people like JK and Mike King and, and lots of others have, have turned. There's lots of people throughout the country who have managed to destigmatize mental health. So now it's a normalized conversation, which is great. But these, you, you imagine you, I was in, in Takanani school maybe about uh, six or eight weeks ago. And, you know, then, Men of our, at my age, I won't, won't assume we're in the same bracket, <laughs> uh, you know, we've got, maybe got three different words that we use to describe uh, emotions, you know, mad, bad, sad. I watched this young six-year-old boy talking to his teacher about a book that she was taking him through. This is one of the books that we use as a resource to sort of explore uh, mental health. He had about 26 different words that he could use to describe what that character in the book was feeling. He was five. So he's by 12, he's going to have the sort of uh, mental health and emotional well-being literacy of, uh, I don't know, yeah, of a, of, a, of a six-year-old who's been around the box several times. So, you know, that's what's, that's what's working really well is that these kids are going to grow up with it. It's normal for them. It's normal for them to, to know that life goes in waves, and it's normal for them to look after their mates. Yeah, and we should be greatly encouraged by that because I know as a parent with young kids, yeah. when I look to the future of, of what's happening on our planet and I look yeah. to social media and whatever else we've got going on, it, it freaks me out a little bit, to be honest, and I'm, I'm a little worried and concerned. Yes. But, but just knowing that my kids will have better tools than I ever had yeah, when right. I was their age gives me some heart. Yeah, yeah, and also a social licence to use them. 
which is another SP2. So the whole school is involved in mental health. We, I talk about uh, Mighty is we're not at the bottom of the cliff. We're not at the top of the cliff. We're about 400 metres back from the top of the cliff. So then kids never get to the top of the cliff. So we're you know, very much mm. preventative. Um, it's, it's the whole school. So it's an infrastructure and a system that the school is, is uh, committed to and puts in place. And like I say, then every child going through this. So it has that sort of initial investment. And then in the second year, we um, the, in the first year we identify in-school leads, mighty leads. And in the second year, we pull them out and do uh, ongoing training uh, with them sort of once a term and they develop an action plan for their school. So it's all it's all uh, tailored and co-designed with the school. So for example, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, please finish. So, it was, yeah, for example, this year we're in a full Muslim immersion school in Mangere, St. Kent's Prep and Lion Hill School in Southland. So, it, you know, it, that's what I really like about it too is it's, it pulls out the strengths and the, the mana of that school and, and they can bring it forward. We give them a framework and guidance to work in, but it's completely co-designed with the school. So it looks different in every school. Yeah, I know young kids now that enjoy doing meditations. Yeah. Is that part of it? Yeah, we, we don't. Um, it's, it's more the making it part of a, a, uh, a, a curriculum. So over five to 12 years, a teacher may, may bring meditation in or mindfulness in, but it's part about learning the sort of, you know, the why and the how of mental health education. And is it where we sort of link in with other, pro- there's some other programs that go into sh- schools, shorter ones, and we combine with them so that there's a, a synergy across that. Tim, how far away are we from having this type of a program or even maybe specifically your program in every single primary school in New Zealand? Yeah, so there's uh, there's a couple of ones that are funded by the Education Department now, or Ministry of Education now, um, that that are through the schools. They'll do a particular aspect. Um, Mana Arke, which is a, a wraparound program around schools, is more around uh, towards the treatment or, or solution-based area. The government's just pumped $90 million into that to go into eight or nine DHBs around the country. They're, towards, they're more sort of... Um, not quite ambulance at the bottom, but that's dealing with kids who have got issues and it wraps support around them. Mm. Ours, we're uh, we're new. We're in 20 schools last year. We'll be in contact with 70 schools this year and then we've got 150 to 200 schools on our waiting list now uh, wanting it. So it's it's that chicken and egg of demand versus funding. The more funding we have, the more schools we can do. Yeah. And, and how about tr- the, the training? Is that is that an issue to getting enough people up to speed with the program to then throw it out and, and implement it? Yeah, so the, the, we're using a train-the-trainer model helps with that because in that first year we'll work with a mighty in-school team and that team helps to sort of transfer that training and, and cascade it across all the teachers in the school and that just makes for efficiency. So rather than a sort of otherwise dangerously we could become, you know, the foundation could become 120 teacher, you know, coaches strong, it costs, you know, $40 million. But this way we can keep it really agile and tight and efficient. And every, t- every teacher in the school becomes uh, educated in how to teach mental health education. Mm. Yeah, just, just to go back to that number that you gave us earlier, kids who are not even 10 years of age yeah, taking their own life, it, it, it seems almost surreal yeah. that, that a, that a, a child of that age... Yeah. Would would think of that a as an option, and That's then right. b b go through with the, yes. and having made the decision, thinking it was the best option for them. I know it's right, and imagine being the parent. 
Imagine being the parent. Although the whole father, because you, you mm. have that gap in that, in that fuck bubble is huge. Mm. So, um, yeah, so it's, you know, there's not many, luckily, but the fact that there's even one is, uh, you know, even, it, even it, being a nine-year-old, your life was kick the can and running around the cul-de-sac oh, and kicking a ball and riding the bike. Best, best years of your life when mm. you're a kid. You, you certainly don't. You certainly well. You shouldn't have the pressures that you have no. later in life. It, no. it makes me just. A, I, don't, I hope you don't think I'm putting you on the spot here by throwing this question at you, Tim. But it makes me think. I wonder if it, still to this point that we we don't talk about suicide enough. That we haven't still found the right balance between talking about it and and having people think that because we're talking about it, therefore it's somehow being promoted That's as right. an option yeah. that yeah. no one believes should be one. Yeah, yeah, there are two schools of thought or, mm. uh, in that area. One where if you talk about it, it promotes it. And yeah. the other school of thought, if you, if you talk about it, it normalises it. Yeah. So it's, it's a hard, I don't think there's any, no one really knows the answer. Um, mm. and, and every person going through it um, is, is in a different spot. So it's very hard to pull apart. And, and also, you know, we've got to think, we've typically looked at suicide and mental health from a Western perspective. So very individualistic and, re- and reductionist, whereas um, you know the the knowledge that's coming through from Maori and Pacific and Asian and Indian is really enriching how we see health in general. So Tim, can we take heart in the knowledge that the our young kids in New Zealand and our society are learning these valuable skills to identify how they're how they're going themselves? but also to have conversations with their friends, with their family members uh, about yeah, being healthier. Yeah, yeah, we're seeing it. Uh, you know, we kicked off uh, going into schools last year, and schools very, very quickly flipped to being online. And even with the COVID lockdowns, we saw changes in, the dry, in, in schools, both with kids, teachers, and the school environment within five months. So quite quickly, Mighty gets in place and the schools get in behind it and change happens. So JK's, you know, his, his line is that it'll take a generation to change it, but we have to start. You know, we can't, can't wait another 10 years. So it, it will take a generation to get through. We want to be in 1,600 schools, so that's going to take a while to get through. But, yeah, I think very much this year, Mighty definitely is a, is a, a co-popper of, of hope and, and drive and change. And it's not about the uh, suicide stats. It's about mm. building the capability and capacity of that of that tamariki and their child, but also of the schools, so that they are, they're equipped as well with long term sustainable change. Yeah, absolutely love what you're doing, Tim. It's it's inspiring okay. stuff and hugely important and not to be underestimated. I love it. So thank you so much for talking with us yes. and for our listeners today on Take It From Us. Go well.
from Jason Derulo called Undefeated. Uh, take it from us. You're listening to our program today. Thanks so much for doing that. Uh, Grant Robertson released his budget last week, of course. Big news. A lot of money going to health. Around $100 million has been put aside for mental well-being and for mental health services over a four-year period. We need to get into this and, and take a deeper dive. Regular contributor to our program is the Chief Executive of Ember, Daryl Bishop. It's always good to get Daryl's thoughts and, and to hear what he has to say. Nice of you to join the program as always, Daryl. How are you today? I'm good, mate. Yeah, I'm really good. I, I seem to be putting COVID behind us as a family and, and getting on with life. It takes a while to get over it. but uh, It does. I feel healthy today. I feel like I'm ready to go. I can hear the smile in your voice, which is which is lovely to hear. Now, last week, of course, uh, Grant Robertson unveiled his budget, more money going to health than ever before, $11.1 billion over four years. $100 million of that has been ring-fenced to help in the mental health sector. Sounds like a nice round number, $100 million, but in reality, what is it going to do? Look, look I mean, first and foremost... Before, before we get into detail and, and talk about what that money's going to, you know, this is... I, I worked out the other day, I think this is my 23rd budget since since I moved here. It's probably the third or fourth that's mentioned mental health. So, first and foremost, I'm, I'm always grateful when there's specific targeted funding for mental health because I think as a area of health and, and an, an area of well-being in society, I think we are, we are often the Cinderella of, of, of funding. So, you know, we make do, we mend, we innovate, we use what we've got, we try and do better with this funding we have. So to see 
funding going into anything in mental health is great, first and foremost. I, I think uh, what's been really, what's really good about this, and, and I don't, we can talk a little bit more about what I, w- I personally would like to see more of, but what's really good about this is it is going into areas that we've advocated for. So we've talked for in recent years about, you know, there needing to be better crisis response, there needing to be earlier, better child and adolescent services, there needing to be more focus on developing a workforce, the real desire to work in schools and work with children, and that's where the funding's going. We're also, obviously, you'll know that Ember and a few other organisations are massive advocates for peer support, and three or four times in, in that funding it mentions peer-led services in crisis settings, in child and adolescent settings. So we have to we have to applaud that. That's fantastic. I'm really, really, really happy to see a government take notice of the things that we are saying work and putting more funding there. So, so and, and the rollout of the Manaaki in schools, I'm so chuffed about that because it's a, it's a fabulous programme and to see it going to targeted areas around the country, I, I, a transparent mm. note, it's not anything to do with Ember, it's, mm. it's organisations, to see that going to, and also the picky pilot, to see these things that have been developed and are showing promise being expanded into areas of high inequities around the country. I, I mean, that's, that was that was really pleasing. Uh, so, yeah, so that, that's that particularly the applause bit. I, I think on the other side, uh, 100 million sounds like a lot. Uh, it, when you break it down over four years and you spread it across the country, of course it's not as much as you would think. So I would like the government to see this as being a, a beginning you know a, a, this, this we need more of this year on year we need more and more funding to go into these areas we need a system that works earlier better we need to back the things that are working like peer support working with children around their mental well-being that sort of stuff we need to do more and more so i'd like to see this to be the beginning of a, a long-term commitment from governments across both sides of the house because it's so important and also, I, I wouldn't want us to take our eye off the ball because this, what this does is inject funding into areas where it's sorely needed and, and areas of promise and areas of best practice and things which we think will make a big difference. But we shouldn't take our eye off the ball that we are still working in a system that probably needs to be reviewed as a whole system. And I would encourage the government to work with people like Ember and, and other NGOs and also leaders right across the sector about how we we transform the system and build you know this this is improving what we have and injecting funding into promising things but we also need to be thinking long term about about transforming and having a different way of thinking about mental health and i wouldn't want to take her eye off the ball there uh, but so so you know a really good tick mark really promising rewarding to see money going into things that we've all advocated for but it's just the beginning. We need to do so much more. Mm. You know, if we want the next generation to to be uh, a flourishing uh, generation who who aren't beset with the mental health and, and addiction challenges we see now, we we need to, we need to continue this investment. 
make, makes me wonder as to how much investment is required is going to be required to actually get boots on the ground. Because we're hearing, about, but that's why I talk about transformation. Because if if you're always thinking about how much money you need to spend, Kent, to mm. get more nurses, more doctors, supporting more sick people, you'll never have enough money. What we need to think about is how we get more initiatives like Manaaki and and more things and transform the system so that we support people to be like. So we reduce bad. So the basic model to follow is you want we want to make fewer bad things happen to people you want make to make so you reduce things like trauma violence abuse alcoholism drugs that sort of thing you want to create a generation who are more resilient when bad things do happen so you want to work with kids so that when bad things do happen when the trials and tribulations of life hit them they are stronger more resilient and can bounce back from those things and then the third thing is you want to build a world-class health system that because even if you do those things well, you still get some stuff, some trauma, some bad things, some kids that aren't resilient enough, all those things. And you want to be able to intervene as early as possible with world-class interventions, the things that really work, so that you catch people as early as possible. Mm-hmm. And then the that's the system we want to build. If you see the mental health funding as always being just boots on the ground, doctors, nurses at the bottom of the cliff, just treating sick people... You'll never have enough money. We we don't have enough doctors, don't have enough nurses, we don't have enough funding. We've got to think about it as preventative, promote, working with young people, working earlier, and do more and more of that because that's what will make the biggest difference in the long term. But that that's that's my mm. my real belief. So with, with with that being said, and with what you saw last week with the budget and some of these numbers and some of the programs that you've talked about, how far down that path are we to getting to where you think we need to be? Look, I, I think this government's getting there. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I, 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 this isn't a party political conversation because I think the national government funded some really good things. But, but I think we are now routinely. It's a little bit like climate change. We now routinely talk about climate change, climate crisis. We all now talk about well-being, and I think that's the biggest shift. So we are all we are all talking about prevention, promotion in our everyday language. So so you'll have a conversation at a barbecue now, and people will talk about looking after their mental well-being the same way that they talk about looking after their physical well-being. People will talk about taking a mental health day, taking time out, spending time with family, noticing nature around them, doing physical exercise for mental well-being routinely. So we are shifting what we need to follow that up. And there is some of this in the budget, Ken, is targeted intervention in schools, in communities, in families to back that up so that people are supported to be well and supported to deal with the things that happen to them and to prevent some of the things happening to them. So so we are getting there. I think uh, we all, you know, I, I still think the system is far more biased towards treatment, as it needs to be, because there's lots of people that need help. As opposed to prevention. Yeah, but this will take uh, generations, Ken. You know, this will take a long time. We need to see this as a shift in thinking forever, not not just a budget or one person like me talking to one person like you about doing more well-being or Mike King talking about it or whoever talking about it. This needs to be the way we think about mental health forever, is that 
if you can get in earlier, if you can create flourishing, healthy, resilient generations of, of, of young people, then these things will get easier over generations. And it's promising to see that, and it's promising to see a focus on... And also, these things aren't impacting people evenly. There are inequities in our society that reflect the economic and social inequities that are part of our society as well. So it is good to see some of that being targeted in areas that are experiencing the most hardship, like areas of the country with the Manaaki funding are focused on, on areas of the country that need it the most. So, so I'd, I'd give it a good solid 6 out of 10, Ken. I, I think it's good, but we need to do so much more. And we need to keep thinking about how we can work smarter, not just keep chasing uh, at the bottom of the cliff. Hmm. Well, well said. I always appreciate your thoughts and your input, Daryl, and so glad to hear that you and the family are, have been on the mend and you're feeling a lot better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, we, we, we're good. And, and look, I, I do feel... I, I, I always sound like I'm uh, rainbow, rainbows and unicorns when I come on here, but I do think we need to try and be positive because... We are heading in the right direction. We just we just need to keep governments honest because they need to do so much more. We need we need to take mental well being needs to be the centre of every budget until I'm in the grave. You know we, we've got so far to go. Daryl Bishop, Chief Executive of Ember. That's why we like to get him on as a regular guest on this program. You can hear the passion in his voice. Please leave us a note, of course, on our Facebook page, facebook.com. I get to take it from us. When you are there, give us a Sheldon shout-out. Nominate someone that we can talk about on the program. Karen, who are we talking about today? Hey, Kent. Yes, well, I was reading about a lady called Amina Omar. She's a Somalian migrant. She's 34. She came to New Zealand as a refugee, and she's deaf and mute. Um, now, one thing she's really wanted to do is to learn how to drive, but obviously it's quite difficult. She can't speak, and uh, she struggled to learn sign language. She got taught to drive by Kevin McCready, who was an interpreter, and he helped teach her drive teach her to drive and then she took more lessons with the Pukitapapa Community Driving School. They're a, a, a group that funds driving for refugees and um, she finally, after 50 tries, got her restricted licence and is now yes. able to drive her family places and says the independence she has gained by being able to drive is just amazing. So that's fantastic. I bet. What a great story and good for her. And, and for all of the people, too, to help her to, to pass and, and get the restricted. I think, Karen, for memory, I failed my restricted first time around. But just don't tell anybody. I got there eventually. That is our program. Thanks very much. What a great story. Thanks to Karen Murphy for putting the program together. Thanks for you for listening and to all of our guests today. Let's look after each other. Let's look after ourselves, of course, and we'll reconvene again next week here on Take It From Us. You've been listening to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns, produced by Karen Murphy, executive producer Andrew Dewhurst, made with the real stories and voices from our community. And for that, we thank you. For more information on anything you've heard on today's show or for direction on where to seek further advice or assistance, visit our Facebook page, Take It From Us. Kia ora, my friend. I'm Susie Cato, inviting you to join me for New Zealand.